I'm Kim, and welcome to Satoric's podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the month of October 2017. Join us this month as we talk with Gordon Patterson, Bunker Hill native son, about the reopening of Angel's Flight Railway and other ways in which his lost Victorian neighborhood survives. We'll also visit with Alona Anthony to hear about how her late husband, Stephen, took on the Los Angeles establishment in a one-man battle against the eminent domain seizure that threatened his beloved storybook cottage. Hollywood museums, land grabs, ideological zealots, police surveillance, historic preservation. The siege of Fort Anthony is a complex and powerful story that's as relevant today as it was in 1964, so stay tuned. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Hermina between South Pass and Highland Park, Grand Central Mark. It is divine. You can't eat the sunshine, but it's a gold mine. it monthly it's harder to keep it so. welcome everyone thank you for listening to our podcast you can't eat the sunshine for the month of october 2017 this month for our interviews we'll talk with gordon pattison he's a bunker hill native son and we'll be talking to him about the reopening of his beloved angel's flight and also why and how his neighborhood, his lost Victorian neighborhood, still survives. We'll also be speaking with Alona Anthony. Her late husband, Stephen, in 1964, waged a heroic battle against the seizure by eminent domain of their storybook cottage across from the Hollywood Bowl. And it is a it is a important story to Los Angeles, and we're happy to have her join us. And so Kim, my lovely wife, Pishka Maven, Please bring us up to speed on a number of things. Well, to start with, in my role as the Pishka Maven, I'm here to remind you that if you like the show and you'd like to support what we do, we are always grateful for contributions dropped into our tip jar, which you can find digitally on uh, the website for this podcast. It's never obligatory, but it's certainly always appreciated. We uh, take the money that you might send to us and we blow it on lovely things like chili rano burritos on the road while going out to find people to talk to for you to listen to. Thanks for your support. Okay, great. So, Kim, let's um, let's jump into the the. Clo- did did you mention that we won the the award for best podcast history podcast in the LA Weekly? I, I didn't. Okay, no. so okay, we'll get to that. Okay, so for people listening for the first time, because you you read that we are correctly the best history podcast for Los Angeles. Um, we have a couple sections before we get into the interviews. Closely watched trains and. Upcoming events. I think upcoming events are closely watched. Okay, we have we we talk about issues important to us and some upcoming events. Yes, so let's jump into that. Kim, first closely watched train. Oh, it's it's that we yeah, it's the podcast. 
Oh, well, I was so proud of you, Richard. I let you sleep in when I got that Google alert that said the LA Weekly had selected this podcast, 121 episodes in, as the best LA history podcast uh, for the Best of LA issue. And the nice thing about this honor is that it actually doesn't even fit into this year's Best of LA nominees. They took a neighborhood-centric approach. All of the winners were set in their particular neighborhoods, which... I like because I just wrote a guidebook called How to Find uh, Lost Los Angeles, or Old Los Angeles, rather, that uses that same structure. But they had a few things that sort of floated on the top, or were the cream on top of the ice cream sundae, if you will, and those are things that are citywide, and one of them is us, this podcast. So congratulations, Richard, and I hope you enjoyed your extra 20 minutes of sleep. Thank you, Kim. I, I, I think I did. I know I, I, liked, I liked sleeping. Um, so, Kim... Crossroads of the World, Robert Dura, Architect, 1936, cruise ship, villages of the world-themed shopping mall owned by Mort Lecretz. So they've... The Lecretz family has partnered with a developer who wants to um, reimagine um, what the streets in the immediate area of Los Palmas and Sunset. Los Palmas from Sunset to Hollywood are kind of like one Rodeo did with reimagining what Beverly Hills look like at the intersection of Rodeo and Wilshire. Do you want to talk about this for a minute? Yeah, it's funny. I'm um, certainly a very driven person, and I get ideas and I run with them, but it would never occur to me to change the streetscape of my beloved Hollywood but that's the proposal for the uh, new project to surround Crossroads. Crossroads of the World, of course, a National Register monument and a Los Angeles historic monument as well, which has been lovingly cared for by the Lecretz family for, gosh, 40-some years? 76. 76. Um, it is in no danger whatsoever. In fact, the proposal has some really lovely components, including reactivating Crossroads as it was originally intended to be, an open-air shopping market where people will come in, walk around the building that looks like a cruise ship, very similar to the uh, Coca-Cola bottling plant down the south of downtown, which Dura also built, and on either side of them will be the storybook Fantasia buildings, which evoke the various places you might take your cruise to, including Morocco, which is wonderful. Um, I love the idea of activating the space and not having it be, you know, quiet offices that maybe two or three people come to during the course of the day. But the larger project, which is to be on the streets surrounding it, including a diagonal avenue, which would be created through a street vacation, whoa, very large scale, and a lot of the um, preservation groups in the community, including Hollywood Heritage and the Conservancy and now the Cultural Heritage Commission, which is not a preservation group, but it's a commission charged with keeping the city honest in terms of uh, historic preservation. They're all asking some questions about the scale and particularly how it would impact the historic properties that surround Crossroads, uh, most significantly the Hollywood Reporter Building which uh, would be slated for demolition under the initial project, and now there's some discussion about doing something different. So everybody's looking at it very closely. Um, I don't know if this project will be built. It, it's very, very large. It may be built in some fashion. It's, um, okay, so this is just, this is, we don't, we don't know. We, uh, we're very concerned. Um, we're very, 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 very concerned, and we're going to keep you posted, and, and we got to move on, Okay. Mm -hmm. 
We do. Okay. All right. So, um, Rudolf Schindler's Sachs Apartments, uh, which is a historic cultural monument under the city ordinance. Kim, there's there's now this huge kerfuffle. Oh my God! Do you want to just sure. Airbnb and yeah. yeah, neighborhood councils and disgruntled tenants, disgruntled landlords. Everyone's unhappy. Yeah, well, this is an interesting story because the the Schindler Sachs apartments, which sort of crawl over the hillside in Silver Lake and include a number of small buildings that work together in this wonderful puzzle piece fashion, great modernist structure. The owner actually um, submitted it himself as a landmark, and it was, of course, accepted because it's an incredibly important example of community housing by one of the, the great modernist architects who worked and thrived here in Los Angeles, Rudolf Schindler. But immediately after obtaining this uh, landmarking recognition, and I presume Millzac's tax breaks, the owner started doing a lot of work around the place, which was of some concern to the tenants, most of whom have lived there for a number of years and are very emotionally invested in this place. There's something called a effective ownership, where people feel like they own something. A great example is the way Gordon Patterson will be talking about Angel's Flight, his Angel's Flight funicular. Um, but there's a special sort of effective ownership when people choose to rent in a historic building, and they put up with all of the headaches that this entails because they're true believers and they love the place. And although they don't own it, they do invest every month in it, and their commitment means something. So the preservation community started hearing some really troubling things coming out of the tenants, uh, that the work that was being done was not to the Secretary of the Interior standards, that alterations were being made to historically intact apartments, and that ultimately what the owner was hoping to do was to uh, vacate about five of the units and turn them into some sort of B&B uh, without sufficient parking. And the main concern with a B&B and an application for a change in, in zoning to permit that is a B&B will typically have a one shared kitchen, which suggested that perhaps the historic Schindler kitchens were going to go away, and that violates the, the landmark ordinance. So the latest thing that's happened after a lot of the um, really upset tenants were um, dealing with you know, some health and safety issues. The work was very loud and elaborate and included some plumbing problems that were really gross and nasty. Um, they went to their city council person. They went to building and safety. They went to the neighborhood council. We're not the biggest fans of neighborhood councils because they are so often corruptible. But in this case, the neighborhood council uh, really listened to the people and wrote a, a pretty serious letter challenging this attempt to create an Airbnb, um, saying that it had been done in bad will and was violating the spirit of the preservation ordinance. So hopefully, you know, everyone can come back in a spirit of goodwill and actually <laughs> take care of this property as it's meant to be. It is a city landmark, and as such, it doesn't belong to anyone. In particular, it belongs to all of us. Thank you, Kim. We'll keep you posted. So just um, very quickly, uh, since our last podcast, a 3D scan of the Soden House has been published on our blog. Uh, we work with our friend Craig Sauer to do a lot of 3D scans in inaccessible places. Soden House, no exception. Uh, Soden House has strong ties to... Incorrectly. strong. Not really. Okay, well... Well, you're going to say it has strong ties incorrectly to the, the Black Dolly investigation, but the fact of the matter is... It was wired. Yeah. It, it was... It, 
Steve Hodell, who is a retired policeman who is of the belief that his father killed the Black Dahlia, um, best short, in 1947, and also uh, later was the Zodiac Killer, 20-some years later. Interesting set of theories. Um, his father, George, did live in the house. He did become one of the later suspects in the case, and uh, his house was bugged by uh, the wiretapping geniuses of the LAPD. So for many years... Uh, Steve Hodell has been wanting to do investigations at the house, which has been privately owned. Um, in recent years, it's been in the hands of a guy named Zoran Balbes. I think I'm pronouncing that right. More on him later. He's um, one of those sort of problematic rich people who really thinks that they're an incredibly gifted preservation architect. And actually, they're just an incredibly gifted rich person. <laughs> so some weird things have been done to the house under Zoran's care, but uh, quite recently, it passed into uh, new owners who kindly have opened the house up for some documentation, which uh, brings us to scan number six that we did with Craig Sauer. And this is the first time Craig was actually contacted about a historic property and was able to bring us in. Up to this point, we've been taking him into historic places that we have relationships with. So that was very fun. And the exciting thing about working on that scan, uh, not just visiting the house and the spooky basement, uh, which actually is spooky, whether it has anything to do with the Black Dahlia case or not, was seeing that the new owners recognize when you have an architecturally significant house, you don't want to completely cover it up with jungle growth. Oh. Oh, I know. I Listen, the, the exterior, it, it was invisible. And, and let's bear in mind, too, in addition to banana trees and palm trees and begonias and God knows what, there was also a greater-than-life-size suit of armor in front of the house during Zoran Balbus's um, residence there, which made it impossible to photograph without looking silly. So here's to the new owners, and if you'd like to take a digital tour, you can do that on our website. You'll find the link on the podcast, and hopefully soon you'll have opportunities to visit the house, because um, in addition to living in it, they plan to open it up for charitable pursuits. So write a check to somebody. Go tour this groovy pad. Okay, good. All right, so Kim, I think you're just going to just seamlessly transition to Zorin's next crisis, 637 South Lucerne, the, the John C. Austin Hiram Higgins house. Oh, boy. Okay, so we have in past episodes of this podcast and, and in our life and on our bus tours... Yes, we give bus tours, in case you didn't know. Talked a lot about the fact that although Los Angeles has one of the best historic preservation ordinances in the country and one of the earliest to be implemented, it has this giant gaping hole. And, and that gaping hole is interior landmark protection. Now, even though the residents, for instance, of the, the Schindler-Sachs apartments were able to go to the neighborhood council and say, interior demolitions are happening, this is a problem, and the neighborhood council agreed with them based on how the landmark um, was written, the application, because the interior integrity was part of how this building was landmarked and how it became eligible for tax relief. Um, officially, the city doesn't really have an interior landmarking ordinance, and they were very close to getting one maybe a decade ago. And unfortunately, um, a, a lobby group attached to landlords, the Central City Association, lobbied city council and was able to take the teeth out of the revised ordinance. This means when someone like Soren Balbus gets bored with um, whatever he did at Soden House, God bless him, he can buy the John C. Austin 1902 uh, Hiram Higgins house, better known as the house from the movie Ben. Yes, the right. movie. Oh, 
you know? Oh, I know. The charming film about the young man who was bedeviled by his boss and his only friends in his home as his family becomes smaller and smaller and his life becomes more out of control. His only friends are the rats. Yeah. And the rats who love him end up killing his boss. And it's wonderful. And, and one of the great stars of the film is this incredible 1902 mansion with its beautiful, dark woods, city landmark, much beloved, restored over the course of the 1980s by the owner who adored it, put into the landmark status at that time. Zoran Balba spot it and decided that it would be great to flip it as a bright, white, modern-looking... Oh. Okay, Kim, I know. Just, okay, just have a sip of tea, darling. Okay, it's, it, we're going to move on. Okay. So I just, I just want to, so one of, one of our favorite places is, is gone, pretty much. Ports of Call. Oh. It's gone. So this is, this is, of course, the 60s retro vision of a fisherman's village. Kind of like Crossroads of the World, only by the water. Exactly, darling, and and so um, so the port of Los Angeles is has implement has started its um, five year fewer but better tenant um, beautification project of the port of Los Angeles, and so part of making the port of Los Angeles more beautiful is to have fewer tenants. So ports of call by the time we publish this will mostly be vacant. They've evicted everyone, and um, that just sucks. And we we're running. We have still have a lot of stuff to talk about. So I just want to keep this really short. I hate it. I'm really mad at Dawn Lu for doing this. Um, they're small independent businesses. Ports of Call is like was one of the greatest places to go, and. I think they're going to have a really hard time recreating this, and I think it was a really bad decision to ignore the business's requests for more time, for just working with them more, trying to keep them to find solutions which, which allowed them, which put them anywhere where they are now, which is evicted, and, and the place is shut up. Yeah, and, and these people are going away, and these are the people who have have stuck it out at a deteriorating and declining tourist attraction in in a spirit of great goodwill and fellowship. And I, I think they deserve a little better recognition than just no help at all from the port, which, boy, the port is rich. and Boy, they have a lot of land. And it wouldn't have been that hard to do something really generous. But they didn't. So, yay, Los Angeles. More on that. Don Lou, we're not done with him. Don't worry. Okay, so um, we're going to flip. These the order of some of these, so don't worry, Kim. I'm not. Merced Theater, just quickly. Okay, the Merced Theater, 1870. It's on. It's on the plaza. Okay, it's like one of the oldest buildings in Los Angeles. City owns it as as does as it owns Pico House, adjacent immediately adjacent to it, which is 1869. Ezra Kaiser. <laughs> um, so I'm happy to say that the decision to convert the Merced Theater into a, the, the city of Los Angeles' television production studio has been dropped because all the bids were 50% over what they were, what the budget for the project was. So they just said no. And that's good. And, and maybe we can start to get some discussions as to 
what um, an empathic response to how to activate the Merced Theater for the public at large would be. Well, there's always this problem when the county and city are sort of elbow to elbow, but not arm in arm. A perfect example is that in, in a park poor city, um, city council decided the best place to take Quimby funds and build a park would be kitty corner to Grand Park right across from City Hall, which is ridiculous because there's already a giant park there. It just happens to be controlled by the county. Um, the county right now is in the process of developing a very serious mixed-use project, which will um, look down onto the Merced Theater and go up the hill towards the, um, the, the, the monument there, the uh, Fort Moore oh. Memorial, which is in the process of being restored, and, and that fountain will be restored and the flagpole and everyone will be looking up the hill and getting a sense of Los Angeles history and from the top of the hill you'll look down at the plaza and when you do you'll see the vacant neglected derelict Pico House which the city of Los Angeles has failed repeatedly to activate including getting stuck in gosh was that a 20 year long lawsuit with someone who was supposed to open a restaurant in there Ooh. And they'll see the Merced Theater, our, our oldest surviving theater, an extraordinary building. Small, modest, intimate, evocative of the past. Do we really want to look at this and see inside glowing television lights because they're filming something for local yeah, city uh, council yeah. cable? Or do we want to go inside and have a French meal in the spirit of old Los Angeles? Yeah, I, I, I know. It's, it, okay. Money and politics, darling. We have to keep moving. Money and politics. And a complete lack of vision. And it's uh, pathetic, that's, actually. That's what money and politics... That's what I mean when I say money and politics. There's a complete lack of vision and inability to make any kind of decision that is correct. Wouldn't that be an amazing home for the Bob Baker Marionette Theater? Just saying. Okay, so Kim, we have to keep moving. All right, this is you. This is your baby. That's my baby. Uh, Rancho District. In Burbank. Oh, this has been so beautiful to see. Now, people come up to me all the time on the bus and they start complaining and crying about things that they care about that are going away. And, and they say, preservation doesn't work in Los Angeles. They're demolishing everything. And I, I will take them aside and I will put my arm metaphorically around them because I'm not really a very touchy person. And, I'm, and I'll say this. Listen, I know it seems that way, and you drive down the street in Hollywood, and all you see are the cranes and these ugly developments that look like a robot cat coughed up a robot hairball. And I, I know it's depressing, but this is the golden age of historic preservation activism. Never before have people been able to come together, amplify their voices, send their message to the people in power, and scare the hell out of them. It works. If you get the right message, and you know who to ask, and you know who to pressure... You can bring people together, and you can change these really negative, demolition-centric plans. And it has been so inspiring to see what happened in the Rancho District of Burbank, a neighborhood you probably aren't even aware of unless you live in Burbank. Um, it's over by where all of the horse corrals are. It's the backside of Griffith Park, and they have this lovely, walkable neighborhood well, a trottable neighborhood, really, if you will, with um, large lots where a lot of people keep horses on their properties. People actually uh, commute around the neighborhood on horseback. And in the heart of it, there's one particularly uh, specially zoned section, which is zoned um, for, for entertainment, commercial entertainment. And it contains the Pickwick Bowl, which is a bowling alley and banquet hall. 
And across the way, and owned by the same people, is Viva Cantina, which is a 50-some-year-old Mexican restaurant of no distinction whatsoever, but it includes two music hall spaces where on any given night there'll be a couple of really terrific bands playing and people hop on their horses and go down to Viva and catch a band and they leave their horses outside and it's really lovely. The family that owns these two properties has been approached by um, one of the scuzzier developer. Oh, did I say that? A developer with with a very bad track record for building livable homes that last more than a couple of years without having major structural problems, and um, partnered with this notion of seeking a rezoning to turn what has been a community hub for 50-some years into a very dense uh, residence, um, you know, townhouses and such. And the reason that I'm so inspired by this kind of depressing turn of events is that within three days, 10,000 people had come together on Facebook and signed a petition saying, no way, this is not an appropriate use of this piece of incredibly important land. The family, if they want to get out of the business of of running what they run, they should sell it as is. It's not fair to partner with this powerful developer that has a bunch of money to spend on lobbyists and try to change the zoning. Zoning is destiny. And I I just, I don't know what's going to happen. People are extremely concerned that the Burbank City Council and mayor may not be um, on the side of the people. Certainly, it wouldn't be the first time. But with the amount of real concern and beautiful organization that's taking place over there, I think that everybody who has the ability to make a vote on this at City Council better think very, very long and hard before they accept a check from the developer and vote against the will of the people. The people who live in the Rancho District know what they want, and it is not dense housing. Okay, I think you just insinuated that 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 the Burbank City Council is susceptible to bribery, which I, I don't I don't think you meant. Listen, it, it's simply the way of the world. A lot of people get into city politics because they want to represent the interests of developers. Um, and developers can justify this by saying they're bringing in a lot of tax revenue and are contributing to the community. But the funny thing, developers who build this awful stuff that looks like a robot cat cocked it up, they never live in those buildings. In fact, they never even live in the city where they build them. Okay. Got to keep moving, Kim. Mm. Okay, Kim. So I'm really sad to talk about the next closely watched train because that is William Pereira's 1958 tel- CBS Television City, and so we have a we have a long campaign about William per- Pereira and Peril, which is about two years old now. We've been we've been talking about it for about four with Alan Hess, and I think we're about two years into it. And so whenever we we talk about Pereira, William Pereira's great design legacy of Southern California in peril. Um, Alan so eloquently always says, oh, but look at Television City. It's still a perfectly functional and beautiful television studio. And Pereira was such a visionary that even when no one really understood what a television studio needed to be in the 1950s, he, he... intuited its needs. He asked the questions. He had the forethought to create something that could continue to function into the 21st century. Unfortunately, boy, it has a big parking lot, and boy, is it centrally located, and the, um, the folks at CBS are in the 
early stages of putting this piece of property on the market. What will happen to the iconic Pereira design and that beautiful canopy leading into the television studios? I can't tell you, but it's a really great time to go and see a game show. If you haven't, go line up and see a game show. Get your eyeful, take some pictures, send them to us, and, and pray. Pereira needs a lot of love. I'll keep you posted on this. Okay, very quickly, we just have a couple left, Kim. Okay, El Cid, uh, 2414-2414. West Sunset? Is that right? Yeah, 2414 West Sunset, Elstead. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, well, just to get you up to speed, I mean, this is one of the older Los Angeles landmarks, and while it's changed over the years, at its root, you have this really groovy um, programmatic structure, which was called the Jail Cafe, which went up in 1925. Um, on land that had been used for silent film production prior, but the first, the first structure was this building that looked like an old-fashioned Bastille, and it had a, um, a mannequin of, of a guard watching from overhead, and you would go inside, walk down the, stair the stairs into this lovely little space that looked like a jail, and you would be seated um, at a long, uncomfortable table inside a cell, and when you were ready to order, you would take your tin cup and run it along the bars, and a trustee in a striped uniform would come and he would feed you chicken, which you would eat with your hands because they wouldn't give you a fork or a knife because you might shiv someone with it. Great fun. It went on to have many other iterations. Most recently it has been El Cid, and in the early 1960s, I mean, it didn't look like a jail as late as probably 1935, um, been changed in many ways over the years, but it always had the structure which had a central opening and a long wall on either side, and the wall is what was built when they wanted it to look like a jail. Uh, when it became El Cid and became a flamenco bar in the early 60s, it began to look a, a lot more um, old-world Spanish and got some cartouches and some swirls and some flows, and we got word... Um, not too long ago. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt you. You're gonna read the email. Okay. Okay. We have to keep moving, darling. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Right so. Well, can I say what's going on? Yeah. I. We're gonna say what's going on. Well, let me do that. Okay. So so, we have some blog posts on this. We're gonna post them. Okay. Kim, we just five minutes before airtime, we got the email from the inspector at Building and Safety Richard, that had been assigned you, this. You're really anticipating me. So the point is, not long ago, we we got word and we ran over to confirm that. The rightmost wall of the facade, which had been there since 1925, uh, had been demolished. And we ran over, and sure enough, under the giant sign that says El Cid, the wall was gone. And it looked like some kind of pretty cheap-looking patio was being put in, in this very narrow space between the sidewalk and the long, slanted hill that overlooks the restaurant. Um, Sure enough, this appears to be intentional. The management talked to Eater LA and said, we really want people to, to know we're down there, so we want people who are walking on the sidewalk to hear and see us. Not the most populated bit of sidewalk in Los Angeles, but okay. Um, there weren't any permits, so, so we were kind of curious about what was going on. And um, so an inspector went over and... Uh, Apparently, they determined there's no violation, there's no danger that was observed, the facade wall is just that, a facade, no structural bearing for anything at the site, and no dangerous conditions. So just like that, and this is why things need to be landmarked, kids, um, the jail is no more. All of the prisoners can escape, you in fact can, can see them, they're running up the hill. Hello prisoners, would you like a ride? Let's go.
Thank you, Kim. I, I, I really didn't mean to anticipate you, darling. That's okay. I, I'm sorry. You're I, right. I, I'm taking no, too long I, because no, no. we have we're, we're only recording monthly, and there's so many crises. And 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 we haven't even and we have for our last closely watched trains, the little guy. Ah, the little guy. Our id, <laughs> our super ego, so, our our buddy. Uh, Kim, you're going to talk about Nathan Marsak, the cranky preservationist, and the reason we worked with Nathan for him to create this persona of the cranky preservationist is that, you know, you and I spend a lot of our time in meetings where we like want to throw up or jump out windows, and and it takes all of my emotional, spiritual strength to just say very calmly with my eyes sort of kind of looking at the person and not kind of looking at the person. I want to stay at the table. I, I, we, we, we want to stay at the table. And so Nathan is, is our safety valve for being able to say that. <laughs> because Nathan, Nathan wants to turn over the table. In fact, he wants to turn over the table and jump on it with his friends, the prisoners who have escaped from El Cid. So there are a couple of new episodes of his viral video series. These are two to five minute videos at historic sites. Um, basically, we take Nathan to places where he's very passionate about their preservation and just wind him up and let him go. He's, you know, when I, when I was first coming up with this concept, I was going to call him the spontaneous preservationist because he, he is enormously spontaneous, but he, he really is the cranky preservationist. And, but- Despite him being spontaneous, is furious with me if he makes if I give him minorly incorrect dates, like my date is off by a year. <laughs> yeah, he's right, Richard. Jeez, do your research. So uh, the two new episodes that you can enjoy, and you'll find links on this podcast. Uh, episode ten: Have you hugged your Parker Center today? Blues. Uh, Parker Center has been slated for demolition by the city of Los Angeles, even though it is an iconic Welton Beckett design. It is the first modern police administration building containing the first modern crime lab in American, in world history, Ray Pinker's crime lab. And, and they just allowed uh, the police museum to go in and take everything that they considered significant out, even though I don't so believe they have any that. actual, you know, archivists on staff. So they just took stuff that looked cool, I guess. Um, it's really heartbreaking, and of course there's the issue of the Joseph Young artwork, which is built into the lobby, will need to be removed. Nathan believes, and we agree, and, and so does the Los Angeles Conservancy, that adaptive reuse of the structure is a much greener and more forward-looking approach, Alan Hess agrees, to save a building it saves enormous amounts of money, it saves enormous amounts of resources, and it shows that we are not about the clear-cutting methods of Old Bunker Hill, which will destroy a useful neighborhood and then spend the rest of our lives trying to bring it back, which doesn't work because it existed organically. Now, so Nathan has things to say. And uh, the latest episode, something we're all pretty darn cranky about, actually a Bunker Hill theme. Um, it's episode 11, K. Martin's Lost Bunker Hill Paintings Blues. And, and this is when uh, Nathan goes to Angeles Plaza, the... Um, low-income housing unit for the elderly, which is the largest such west of the Mississippi. And he notes that just a few years ago, Kay Martin, who painted the old houses of Bunker Hill before they were demolished, gifted 
her entire life's work on Bunker Hill to the Community Redevelopment Agency with the proviso that it would be exhibited on Bunker Hill when Bunker Hill became residential again. And for a few years, they actually these paintings were actually exhibited in the halls of the retirement community, and the public could go in if they uh, checked in at the desk and enjoy them. And they were just extraordinary images, including some houses that weren't well-documented in photographs, really, and, and people as, as well. Very, very special. And unfortunately, when they painted the walls of the retirement community, as, as one should, somehow the Natural History Museum took possession of these extraordinary paintings that are supposed to be exhibited for the public good and the public's education on what not to do in redevelopment. And they're just stored away, and it's completely heartbreaking. And Nathan couldn't visit them, so we made a video about how much he misses them on the site. And we hope you'll check them out and share them. These are a nice pocket way of learning about some preservation crises. Nathan's very funny, and, and he, he does some wacky physical business. Sometimes you won't believe what he does next. And at the end of the day, it's all just about staying at the table in his own way, dancing on top of it. Yes. Okay, Kim. Um, very okay. We have to get to the interviews. Let's do it. No, we have some. I'm going to talk about some upcoming events very quickly. Okay. Okay, I have to. Do it. Because we work so hard at them. At the end of this month, October, October 29th, Los Angeles Visionaries Association's monthly Sunday salon in the basement of Grand Central Market, which is both a salon, a talk, and a walking tour, and is free. And is and is free. Free talk, walking tour, basement, Grand Central Market. We are working in conjunction again with the Los Angeles County Arts Commission to put on this salon. This salon is about Los Angeles County public art in the Civic Center. Okay, uh, a great deal of it is from the 1960s, the time when the mid-century modern Hall of Administration courthouse and Hall of Records were put up. Joseph Young's daughters are going to join us. Donna Williams, the conservator for Joseph Young's topographic map on the Hall of Records, is going to be there. We're going to talk about Alison Sars' unveiled a sculpture in front of the Hall of Justice. We're going to talk about um, Frank Ackerman's Vietnam Memorial. If I've forgotten anything, I apologize. It's, it's on the website. It's going to be a lot of fun. Claire Haggerty who is director of collections, is going to lead the tour with Donna Williams, conservator, and the Young Sisters. And I'm going to just give some background on what used to be on Pound Cake Hill. It's going to be totally amazing, and it's free. We're super excited, and we love working with Claire. Okay, very quickly, Sunday, November 5th, Kim, you and I, for under the aegis of Lava Los Angeles Visionaries Association, puts on a quarterly fundraiser for the Cal State Los Angeles Criminalistics Department to raise money for graduate projects. The Criminalistics Department is housed in the Harrodsburg Davis Forensic Science Center at Cal State LA. This is a triumvirate crime lab run by the state DOJ, the Sheriff's Department, and the Los Angeles Police Department. It's in the teaching lab sections of that building. We're not going into the actual Sheriff's Crime Lab or LAPD Crime Lab. That would be impossible. Topic. Symbionese Liberation Army Shootout, May 17, 1974. Six members of the SLA were killed. We're going to do a forensic breakdown of that event. Uh, Brad Schreiber, the author of Revolution's End, about the SLA, is speaking, along with retired arson investigator of the, from the Sheriff's Department, Mike Digby, 
They're a great dynamic duo. I love working with them, and it's going to be awesome. Our second presentation for that day is going to be by Beverly Kerr, who is a DNA specialist in the Sheriff's Department. She's going to be talking about a cold case, which is just adjudicated. Uh, it's a cold case of a murder in Lancaster, uh, Acton specifically, just south of Lancaster. And it's just, uh, she, she, she saved this one. She brought this one home, and it's, it's an awful, gruesome story with a great ending because, because Beverly saves the day. She just comes home and brings us in. So that's the 5th of November. Please come to that. November 25th, 20 days later, is my birthday bus tour. Speaking of William Pereira, Alan Hess is going to join us to talk about UC Irvine and Irvine as a residential community development, University Park. Nathan Marsak, the cranky preservationist, will be on the bus as well, talking about Melrose Abbey, which is a 1925 mausoleum in Anaheim, modeled after Melrose Abbey in Scotland. Kind of. We're going to the Metropolitan State Mental Hospital for a tour. We're We're going to Adobes in Lake Forest eucalyptus groves, and finally, a quick walkthrough around the gated perimeter of the southern campus of Rancho Los Amigos, a.k.a. the Poor Farm. These are all really complicated issues and topics, and we hope you get on the bus. It's a full day, Indian buffet included. Uh, lastly, I just want to throw out there because it's, it's selling so well, March 4th is our next quarterly Crime Lab fundraiser. Topic is wrongful conviction. I'm delighted to say we're working in conjunction with the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office Exoneration Unit and Project Innocence California Innocence Project uh, to put together four hours of case studies of exonerees. We're working with Pia at LAPD. She's a forensic investigator about how what they're doing in terms of laws to get DNA tests. This is going to be amazing. I need to stop talking about it. Just super excited about that. And finally, this year, 2017, is our 10th anniversary. We have a whole... This is... Okay, so Kim, any wrap-up before I introduce our interviews? Happy anniversary, baby. It's been a lot of fun. I know that we're winding down. We've got our tours scheduled through January, and so that everyone knows, or they should, that our last tour of the year is going to be December 9th. And uh, we hope if you haven't yet done something with Esoteric or Lava this year, you will help us celebrate our 10th anniversary. Don't be a stranger. Okay, great. All right. At last, the interviews. Okay. We're interviewing two. We have two interviews today, as always. I'm going to introduce the second interview first. Let me start that again. Two interviews this month, as always. Gordon Pattison, Alona Anthony. I'm going to interview, Alona's interview is going to be second, so I'm going to introduce Alona first. Gordon and Alona are intrinsically connected because earlier this summer we did an event at LAPL about Stephen Anthony, Stephen and Alona's eviction from their house above, just across the street from the, from the Hollywood Bowl. Uh, and of course, Gordon spoke, it was part of that symposium we did on it. So Gordon and Alona are friends, and they share both having lost their family homes through uh, eminent domain, Gordon by the city of Los Angeles, the Community Redevelopment Agency, Alona by the county of Los Angeles. Um, well, uh, it's beyond that. I mean, many people lose their homes to eminent domain, but it's a very small coterie of people whose 
streets are actually obliterated by bulldozers, and that's right. what happened to both of them. So, so the siege of Fort Anthony, which is what this standoff, which Stephen Anthony initiated in early February of 1964, and lasted 64 days, a cat and mouse game. Stephen Anthony, the mouse, Sheriff Peter Pitches, the cat, Alona. So Alona's going to tell the story. This is such a complicated story. I just, if you've listened to the podcast or if you're going to start listening to back episodes, we have a number of interviews with our good friend John Maljevic. And, and John, of course, John and his good friend Charlie. And there's a whole episode John does just on Charlie. John and Charlie were at the siege. They were friends with Stephen Anthony. Uh, former, they're all former Marines. Korea. Stephen Anthony is the singing bartender at Barney's Beanery. John and Charlie are helping Stephen build his 3D projector so we can get a patent on it. Um, and of course, the siege begins and John and Charlie go up to occupy the house with him. And so this, like, this moment when I was, Tim and I, you, you, you and I were with John at the Lamplighter in Reseda, I think, having some lentil soup. And, and, and I said, John, did you know Stephen Anthony? And he said, oh yeah, of course. Yeah, I was building that 3D projector for him. And, and I almost, I, fe- I think I fell out of the booth. Anyway, so they're just personal. So, Kim, because I know we're running short on time, I, I want you to tell everyone what you said when I came up to you three years ago and said, I want to write Alona Anthony a letter. Maybe, I think she's still around and maybe she'd want to talk to us. You can't write a letter to this poor woman whose husband stood off the entire establishment of Los Angeles and Hollywood and, and they lost their home. She must be very, very upset. Well, you actually wanted to call her. And I said, you cannot call this woman out of the blue. And then you said, well, can I write her a letter? And I said, okay, because she can throw it in the trash if she wants to. Okay, so here we go. So this has been a long, wonderful process of becoming Alona's friend. And so I, I'm just going to stop because because this interview will only begin to scratch the surface. And we've only begun our work with this, with Alona. And so we hope you like this interview with Alona. And, and we hope you, you we'll, we'll do more. First interview. First interview is Slats is eating something. Can you help to stop him? One of our cats. I, I just said it on mic. Okay, stop him. Thank you. Our f- first interview is with Gordon Patterson. You, you know Gordon very well if you've listened to this podcast. We work with him all the time. Native of Old Bunker Hill, Saltbox in the Castle, where his family seized by eminent domain in 1964. Talk about that. Um, just Gordon is a dear friend, and we just love working with him and the whole concept of effective ownership. Gordon's seed on Angel's Flight. We'll talk about this. So Gordon is just core to our existence. It's, it would be impossible to conceive of our, of our work without Gordon. He's just so amazing. So, so he's going to be our first interview, and let's take it away with my interview with Gordon. Gordon, I'm here with you. We're at the Colburn School Cafe at 2nd and Grand, and I want you to properly introduce yourself. I'm Gordon Patterson. Um, I am happy to be here at the Colburn School because I'm up on Bunker Hill, which is where I grew up as a small child. My family lived up here, and I rode Angel's Flight many times. We're close to the site of the uh, upper station house of Angel's Flight now. Right, and so let's, um, 
let's let's get us oriented. So we're uh, we, we're here to talk about Angel's Flight ostensibly, but but you mentioned your old houses. Do you want to tell us? So we're we're Colburn Cafe. It's fantastic, by the way. Everyone should come here. So Gordon, you're looking south, and you can see you you're, you're looking southwest, southwest southwest. You're looking southwest to the intersection of of, of second and Grand. Third, that's third and grand, right? Third and grand, and and there are all these skyscrapers. But basically, your houses were in the middle of what is Wells Fargo Plaza, just across the street. So, do you want to try and describe South Bunker Hill Avenue, which which was taken out in about 1968, 69? Yeah. Well, yeah, South Bunker Hill Avenue uh, was the most residential, you could say, of all the streets that were up here. Uh, it was not the thoroughfare that Grand Avenue or uh, Olive were. Um, and it ran from uh, 4th Street north, straight north, uh, all the way across Temple and across Sunset, which is now Cesar Chavez, um, and continued on north of Sunset as North Bunker Hill Avenue, which still exists, but South Bunker Hill Avenue is no more. Perfect. And just... For people listening that, that have not heard every podcast episode you've ever done with us, which are several, um, do you want to tell us what happened to your ha- family's houses? Because it it, 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 it sinks, it'll, it'll let us to come in around 1969, 1970, which is where we'll pick up with Angel's Flight. Um, when uh, the CRA redeveloped Bunker Hill, they purchased everybody's property. Uh, you didn't have much of a choice, uh, you took their check. Um, or you resisted, in which case you didn't get their check. <laughs> but uh, um, the redevelopment kind of hopscotched around. Uh, it first started up north of uh, First Street, uh, where the courthouse and the Grand Park is now. That happened in the early to mid-50s. Um, the part south of First Street, um, much of it existed up until 1960, early 1960s. But it kind of hopscotched around because people would uh, see the writing on the wall, especially after the last court case that approved the Bunker Hill redevelopment plan, uh, and they'd sell out and get they'd cash out and get their money. And in which case the buildings were turn, torn down and turned into parking lots. Um, but the part from uh, about Second Street down to Fourth Street uh, made it all the way to the very end, which was 1964, pretty much. And that's where we are right now, basically. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so the CRA took our property in 1964, at which point they decided, gee, we should have saved something. <laughs> uh, and our property being the two best of what was left, um, they decided they would save the castle, uh, which was 325 South Bunker Hill Avenue, and um, the salt box, which was 349, I think. Um, 42? 39. 39. Thank you. Um, Nathan knows. (laughs) And and so they put a chain link fence around both of them, and they sat up there for five years until 1969. Um, And I used to go up and just stand at the chain link fence and visit just for old time's sake, although a lot of people jumped the fence and went inside and vandalized the inside of those places because I've seen pictures subsequently, but I never went in them. And uh, the CRA set aside some money to move them um, to what is now Heritage Square. They were going to be the founding buildings of uh, what is now Heritage Square, and they did move them. They dismantled or took apart the uh, castle in three pieces 
and they trucked them away one day and they put them back there and they started putting them back together. They built foundations. Uh, they put the castle pieces back together. And I was living um, in Pasadena at the time and going to school at USC. And I would drive by in the morning and I'd look from the Pasadena freeway over at Heritage Square and see what they were doing. And one day I was driving by and they were a pile of ashes because vandals had gone inside and burned them down. So they don't exist anymore, although pieces exist. Um, the front doorknob, for instance, is in a display case at uh, Heritage Square. And Nathan has a piece of balustrade <laughs> from the castle and the salt box. So I told Richard, Nathan, for your information, that we should label these. Property of Gordon Patterson on loan to Nathan Marsak. Very good. Um, before we get to Angel's Light, I don't know if we ever talked about this. Um, Kim and I found documentation from 1970 saying that, so, Angel's Light, right? It's, 19, it's 1969, the city in 1964, that pivotal year, the Community Redevelopment Agency purchases or coerces, coerces the sale of Angel's Light Railway Company from the Moreland family to the city of Los Angeles. And then they start to operate it, the city. In 1969, they're about ready to tear down Angel's Flight, but they say, we're going to save it. And Kim and I have found documentation from the city outlining how to move the castle to the foot of, of, of Third and Hill to make the castle a visit, a reception center for Angel's Flight. And, and it's... T- <laughs> I'll tell you, there were articles, I came across an article in the uh, paper from that time when they're trying to figure out what to do with them and one of the plans was to move it down here but to make it the mayor's residence and <laughs> Sam Yorty said no, absolutely not I'm not living there <laughs> oh, so the castle and the salt box were, were closely watched trains yeah. you'll, you'll, I'm, I'm sorry they're gone alright so the work at hand Gordon the work at hand is that Angel's Flight has just reopened uh, September 1, Kim? No, August 31st. Thursday, August 31st, Angel Sight reopened. And it's today, it's September 3rd. September 4th, thank you. Thank you. And it's closed. Um, <laughs> it had a pretty good run. <laughs> um, but um, I just got an email from Adele, and they're going to reopen really soon. So, um, in spite of this um, mind numbing upsetting disappointment, Gordon. Angel's Flight has officially reopened. It is back in service. It will be back up and running, I'm sure, in a few days. This is uh, Angel's Flight closed uh, on Yom Kippur 2013, Um, and it just just reopened a few days ago. Gordon, tell us about your um, emotional uh, journey through Angel's Flight's uh, uh, September 2013 closing and its reopening just a couple days ago. Well, um, as a little backstory, I, I rode Angel's Flight as an infant. My mother's arms in 1946 uh, was the first time, and we rode Angel's Flight all the time. Uh, when Angel's Flight um, was the last thing up here, why, why did they leave Angel's Flight from 1964 to 69? I'll tell you why. There's, this was all parking up here. They, right. paved, they paved this right. entire hill. And there were cars parked up here, so because people who worked downtown or worked for the city 
parked up here. Um, so they left Angel's Flight running for all those years for that reason. They took it out in 1969, which was um, a very sad day, although they promised us it would come back in two years. But before they took it out, when there was no reason for me to come down here other than to be with it, I'd come down here and park and ride Angel's Flight. I bought a ticket book at the time, which I still have. It had 25 tickets in it. There was one left because I rode it that many times. And so I waited decades for them to bring the thing back. Now, I'm glad I didn't see any of the photographs of what it looked like when they put it in storage in their tender, loving care because it was a wreck. <laughs> but they did bring it back, and they put it back together, and it ran for a few years until it had an unfortunate accident when, when somebody was yeah. killed. And it does kind of irk me that that is, about the, that is one of the things that is always said about um, uh, Angel's Flight Nowadays, when they're talking about it coming back, they always mention that. You know, the thing ran for, from 2000, I mean, 1901 until 1969 with nary a mishap. <clears throat> but they always have to mention the, the crash that they had in 2010. Right? 2001. 2001. Yeah. Anyway, it ran, it uh, was closed again for a long time, and then it came back. Uh, 2010. 2010. And then it, it ran for a few years, and then they closed it again from 2013. And we started to despair about whether it would ever come back again, because um, Angel's Flight is very important to me. Um, I, I own a piece of Angel's Flight. Okay, so let's right. So let's let's get to the heart of the matter. Tell us about your seat and your effective ownership of Angel's Flight. Uh, I <clears throat> there is a seat at the back of each of the cars, Olivet and Sinai that is uh, not enclosed like the rest of the seats. It has a wire cage around it. And that is where I always sat, in one of those seats. I always sat in that seat because it is sort of like being outside the cars. And Angel's Flight, as I've often said for a kid, was a great thrill ride because it, the cars look like they're on a single track. There are three rails. And you're riding on that thing as a kid, and you're wondering, how are we going to avoid right. crashing into the other car? Wait, before I'm going to interrupt you, we have to set this up because today people riding were in the middle of Hill Street between 3rd and 4th, but but you're talking about Angel's Flight at the 3rd Street cut out. So before you continue this story, you need to explain 3rd and Hill and the tunnel. and yeah. When Angel's Flight was uh, put back in, they moved it half a block down from where it was. It used to be at the corner of... 3rd Street and Hill, where the 3rd Street Tunnel goes through um, east to west. And that, um, the cars um, lurch past one another at the last possible instant. Um, and the uh, north car, the, the cross, uh, the, the pass, happened up in the air on stilts because the track was elevated above Clay Street, which was underneath. So you could look down 20 feet and see people and cars down below you, and it happened at the depth of the cutout for the 3rd Street Tunnel. So it looked like you were going to lurch off and be thrown over the precipice to the street below, way below. And even though it um, never happened, you could look out and you're hanging over the side of the 3rd Street Tunnel cutout. So it still was a thrill. It was the greatest thrill ride for a kid. And I've said many times, you had all that adventure for a nickel. Tell, tell us about a day in the life on Old Bunker Hill Garden when you were a child. Give us, uh, give us a Saturday. Uh, well, I, 
um, there's a lot of propaganda about the Angels or um, Bunker Hill being a um, blighted slum, and admittedly, many of the buildings were old, and the city did everything they could to turn it into the slum they said it was. I'm going to interrupt you. We, we've had it from the horse's mouth. Don Spivak said 40% of the buildings on Bunker Hill were salvageable. Oh, yeah. Remember that Remember that conversation? He, he's off the cuff. Oh, yeah, like 40, maybe 50% of the buildings on Bunker Hill were salvageable. Easily salvageable. In fact, they just needed a coat of paint. But um, Bunker Hill, uh, it was said to be a blighted slum filled with crime and uh, derelicts and everything else. But... Bunker Hill was largely a retirement community. Um, they make mention of people uh, living up here that they call pensioners. Uh, these are el- This is what we would call today the elderly poor. They lived up here because this is where they could afford to live. And um, if you can imagine a neighborhood, of, um, neighborhood watch, old ladies peeking out their windows, <laughs> I don't think there was, I think any crime would have been reported very quickly. <laughs> Uh, but you saw these people um, walking the streets. They would get on Angel's Flight. They would go down to Grand Central Market. They'd bring back their um, their groceries. Um, there was a little park at the uh, end of west end of Third Street, where it dead ended into uh, uh, Bunker Hill Avenue, where there's a little park, and the old gentleman would be sitting out there um, reading the paper and feeding the pigeons and playing chess and talking to passersby. Uh, this was this is a famous photo by Ansel Adams. There's a famous. There are some famous photos of that that site. There was another one down um, called. Um, uh, there was a terrace. It was uh, Hill Street ter- uh, Terrace that was above the double tunnels where Hill Street went through Bunker Hill, uh, that part of Bunker Hill uh, at First Street. There was another little park up there where the gentleman would sit um, and um, shoot the breeze. Give us, give us a, a day, a Saturday in your life. You're nine, you're, 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 you're nine years old. Let's go. Well, uh, my father and I um, managed and did repair work on the um, property that we had down here. So Saturdays would be the day to um, go in and refurbish uh, one of the rooms if one of our tenants had moved out. Um, we'd go in and paint and do things like that. Um, we would change uh, the... Uh, washers on the sink if there was a drip. Um, and if he didn't need me, I would go down to the library. I walked down um, 4th Street, down South Bunker Hill Avenue to 4th Street, and then down Hope, uh, where it turned, and I walked down the stairs that were in the retaining wall and across 5th Street and go in the library. The, the Winslow retaining wall across the street from the library, right? Yeah. So um, I spent a lot of time in the library, but I also spent a lot of time just walking around Bunker Hill because I loved the buildings. Um, there was there, there were so many different styles and, and architectural styles of buildings up here. The um, Victorian buildings were all curves and angles and uh, turrets and verandas and porches and retaining walls and the... Decoration um, on all of the buildings was just fascinating, and in uh, the afternoon sun, it would be all lights and shadows, and it was uh, it was a wonderful place. Very good, very good. So, Gordon, um, why don't you just um, why don't you why don't you tell us about Grand Central Market? 
before before we move on, because okay. I, I know that that's um, your 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 mother's Saturday afternoon. Okay. okay. Well, we did shop at, uh, at Grand Central Market, um, and it was a market. It was a real market. It wasn't the food fair that it is now, although you could go and buy a sandwich and, and that kind of thing. But it was a real market where you bought groceries um, from the different vendors that had the stalls in there. Um, there was a Vandy Camps yes. with the, uh, the the ladies in their Dutch outfits with their little hats on and everything. Um so we would we would go down there and, and do a lot of shopping. However, my my father liked to go down on Saturday, late Saturday, because that's when you could get the best bargains. My mother didn't like going to shop in Grand Central Market because she said that the vendors would not let you pick your own produce, right. and so sometimes you'd get home and you had things you wouldn't have picked for yourself. <laughs> but it was fun going there. I still I did enjoy going down there. Okay, let's let's bring this on home, Gordon. We're at a table with people that are obsessed with old Los Angeles. You came up, you grew up in Victorian Los Angeles, um, and you now get to re physically, viscerally reconnect with that part of your life with the reopening of Angel's Way. I want you to tell us what this impact of of nineteenth century Los Angeles had on you growing up. Well, I'll tell you, um, I, I always knew, because we, um, in my childhood, we, we moved from Bunker Hill to, um, out near the airport to Westchester, so I, I lived out there, but I came, we still owned the property, so I came here all the time, every weekend, my dad and I came down here. But I always knew that there was something about me that was different than the kids that I grew up with. There was something about me that was old, older than they were. Uh, Not old, like you're an old man, like like a different type of old. Yeah, just um, just older. <laughs> I would put it that way, older. Um, because I grew up in Victorian Los Angeles. I grew up with people who, if you could have asked them when they were young, who's the Queen of England? What is it, Queen Victoria? Um, those were my friends, and none of my contemporaries had anybody that they'd ever known who was like that. So those people and their experiences were contemporary for me. Uh, so I did. I grew up in Victorian Los Angeles, and it made me appreciate that and appreciate the events that had happened during their lifetime, and it made an historian out of me. I went to college and got a bachelor's degree in history. Um, and I've always felt a connection to those times. Perfect. Um, Angel's Flight will be running again. It, we have to, it's it's going to be fine. Um, Gordon, I want you to tell us why it is so important that that the office of the mayor spearheaded the campaign to save Angel's Flight and bring it back into, into service. Um, yeah, we have to thank the mayor for... For doing that, we just did that. yeah, uh, uh, we because we tried mightily and uh, and and it, it happened through the auspices of a lot of different people. But we have to thank him. Um, things like Angel Pl Flight are, are really important, um, and I'll tell you why I think so. Um, forgive me if I've said you've heard me say this before, but um, historic preservation is an important thing because. Um, 
Somebody I read once said that when you sever the relationship between hist history and place, something's lost. And what I think is lost is um, our connection to the past, uh, which is a very important thing. Um, we forget who we are as Angelinos, because although we may not be the direct descendants of the people who lived here before, we are their descendants in a civic sense. So it's important for us to recognize, to preserve, and protect the things that they gave to us that have meaning and importance and value, like angels' flight. As uh, old as it is, it still is relevant today, and it provides that connection with the past. Gordon, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. We'll, we'll, we'll see you on your seat in a couple days when it reopens. Look for me. I'll be there. <laughs> Hi, my name is Frank Gallagher, and I'm here in uh, San Marino, and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. Alona, Alona, I'm here with you and your son, Chris. We're at the library, and we're just about to do this talk, and I wanted to interview you. So I'm hoping you can give us your full name and tell us why you've come to Los Angeles today. My full name is Ilona Anthony, and I've come to Los Angeles today um, due to the fact that Richard <laughs> has set up um, at the Los Angeles Central Library a talk on an event that happened in the 60s uh, which was called The Siege, um, with my uh, deceased husband, Steve, as the main character <laughs> in The Siege. And at that time, I was um, 20 with three small children, six, one, two and a half, approximate age, and um, fought off the... Los Angeles County. Um, let's 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 take a breath. Let's take a breath. There are no mistakes. That was a good introduction. But take a breath. Let's do this in let's do this in bite-sized pieces. Okay. Okay. I want you. The siege of Fort Anthony is sixty-four days. It begins February 9th, nineteen sixty-four. The custody division of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department arrives as it does in all eviction cases. And they walked up to the house, and they'd already posted an eviction notice, and they asked you to vacate, and your husband leaned out a second-story window with a shotgun, and that effectively created a standoff. 64 days later, it's resolved. Let's hold that February, uh, uh, February 9th. Let's hold that as a placeholder. Let's okay. go back. I want you to describe this house, which doesn't exist anymore, which was soon demolished after this standoff. I want you to tell us about your life in Los Angeles in the early 1960s with your husband and your three children on this hill overlooking the Hollywood Bowl. Well, um, I married when I was 18. Um, I had our first child, 19, another one, 20, and another one, 21. 
uh, when I was age 21. Um, he had a, um, elderly gentleman, which he called his godfather, which he took care of. Well, he bartendered at Barney's Beanery right out of the service. He was a U.S. Marine and right out of the service, he went to work for Barney's Beanery. He was the singing bartender. Yes, he was a singing bartender. Yes. And he actually sang all through his life. He enjoyed singing and playing the violin. Um, the elderly man um, built this home. It was a beautiful uh, English Tudor-style home. Very unique, beautiful, up on the hill across from the Hollywood Bowl. And the Los Angeles County with... Um, the mus- no, let's 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 okay, not okay. get to that. No, let's. Not, not that far. Okay. We're almost there. Okay. <laughs> the el- the elderly gentleman, of course, has a name. His name is Gordon, Gordon Pollock. Pollock. Uh-huh. Gordon Pollock, in 1960, by the early 1960s, has retired from his oh, yeah. career as a cinematographer. Yeah. But Gordon Pollock in the silent film era is is one of these these visionary cinematographers. Yeah. Yeah. He's one yeah. of these men yeah. that help invent. Yes, Cinemat- yes, li- li- was, literally, literally. Yes, so yes, he was inventor. Right, they were working right. on three. Right. So, what, um, what, so let me ask you about that. So, it's it's the it's the late 1950s. Your husband is out of the Marine Corps. He's at Barney's Beanery. He comes under the wing of this older retired cinematographer who has this idea for a 3D projector without yes, glasses. Yes. So tell us about Gordon Pollock and your late husband's work on this 3D projector? Well, I really didn't know my husband that long, um, and, and, and Mr. Pollock, um, probably two years. And in the two years uh, that I knew him, I married him right away. Um, and in those two years, they were constantly working on uh, this 3D um, that, they, that Mr. Pollock had invented. And um, so it was... It was a common thing to see them always working on the 3D. Um, yeah, it was interesting. Perfect. Yeah, okay. Let's. Um, so your your husband was always a very a very affable guy. Everyone loved him. He would yes. bring people home. He would bring strays home, yes. as 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 it were. He was just he was very friendly. He was he, he was friends with everyone. Right, and I think that maybe was a lot uh, due to um, I. Just recently read a lot about Barney at Barney's Beanery. Barney Anthony. Anthony. Your your husband yes. took Barney yeah. Anthony's last, last name. name. So uh-huh. let's get that on the table. I'll say that again. Your husband right. was so close with Barney Anthony, yes. Barney Beanery's owner, that he took his last name. Uh, and uh, Barney uh, Anthony that owned Barney's Beanery, from what I understand uh, reading about him, uh, would take a lot of people in and help people out. And so my husband went in and bartended and sang, and I'm sure he got a lot of Barney's traits. And I didn't realize that, but Barney uh, graduated from Berkeley University mm-hmm. back then. And so it wasn't like, oh, and it really kind of upset me when I heard, you know, they were trying to make my husband look like he was a bad guy and he didn't do this and that. Well, 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 and well, then well, I, but the thing is, is that when I read about Barney, what it, kind of a generous, kind soul, then I could realize 
where my husband got his kind soul from was Barney. Barney helped everybody that came in. I love it. Okay, good. We're doing, this is perfect. This is going very well. So, um, let's start to talk about, let's start to talk about your marriage. You marry him, you're living in Gordon's house. Right. Tell us about this great, how many stairs, let's start with the stairs. Tell us how many stairs you walked up with toddlers. Oh, I don't know how I did it, tell you the truth. Because <laughs> um, we didn't have a washer or dryer in that house. So I'd have to take the three children down. So the one baby, well, first they'd all stay up in the house. And then I'd bring all the, like when Steve would be gone, uh, I'd take all the laundry down. And they all stayed up in the playpen. And then uh, I brought one with a walker stroller, one in the, I don't know how I did it, one in the, the baby seat type thing. And the older boy would hold his sister. They held, she held my uh, skirt. And we all would walk down. I don't know how I did it, tell you the truth. But that's how we got up and down the stairs, all three of us. And so I have no pity for people that whine about carrying their children because I don't know how I, a, a baby and a didn't walk and another one had to be in a walker God and, bless you yeah I don't know how I did it okay. so, but 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 you did and you and you loved it I want you I to did. tell us I did I loved no, it I, I did. loved it I loved it I want you we to tell right. yeah. I want you to tell us about this house that Gordon Pollock designed and it was made up of of scenic elements he would oh, just yeah. go to the studio or he yeah. salvaged from films as they were ending that he shot. Yes. He was cinematographer for He would salvage scenic. He would doors. Yeah. Doors. I think he, I think they must have gone to Europe to do some of these films like Ben-Hur yeah. and stuff. I think they went to Europe. And uh, I think that's, uh, our, the staircase was the black um, oak. Like the floors were this black oak. It was a really neat, neat, neat home. Very, very nice home. And uh, Gordon was paralyzed, partially paralyzed. And um, we just, as Steve said, when I came in with the, and the baby, that Gordon came to life. So that's what really made me feel really, you know, sad. Because, you know, no concern about this elderly man. Right. Let's, um, let's, yeah. let's, okay. let's have you talk about a day in the life with you and your late husband. So just... You have a, maybe Gordon's watching the kids. Maybe you no, guys. No, Gordon couldn't. He, he was, couldn't he watch was the kids. Okay, no, he could, could barely right. talk. We were teaching him how to talk. Um, and, but yeah. but I, I know that you two went out occasionally for drives. So yes, we did. Yes. So tell us about yeah. a, a typical evening where you just went out and drove around. Um, well, we would go up um, um, the pass. What is that called? Coanga Pass. Up there, we're yeah. going up to Coanga um, Pass. The new freeway, the uh, uh, you know, Opta Valley, Ventura. Nobody oh. was out there. Okay, you Nobody you would you would, you would go through the Coinga um you go through the Coinga the Coinga Pass. Yeah, we get on the freeway and we'd go up there. Nobody around. No, nobody around at the time. There was a big boy. Um, the the um, hamburgers with the machines and stuff. We would do something like you know go there and then go up to the pass and come back down. Nobody around at the time. That was great. That was wonderful. Good. All right. So let's, I think we set the stage. Why don't you start 
we we sort of we started with February 9th, nineteen sixty four. Um, starting in 1962, uh, the county of Los Angeles county council sends a letter to the house to Gordon, letting him know that the house is they're making him an offer because they want to seize it by eminent domain. They want to make him the best offer, and he better take it. This this basically kills him. Um, the uh, 1963, you get more letters. Uh, an appeal is filed. By your husband, we're going to get let you talk about that in a second. But I just by nineteen by the beginning of nineteen sixty four, uh, a judge in Los in Los Angeles County Superior Court has said no, they have to go. I'm issuing eviction. I'm evicting them. Sheriff served these eviction papers. February 9th, the courts division shows up, and you get the standoff. So I want you pretty quickly because it's a very long story. But I just want you to tell us what you were feeling when your family was descended upon by, by the sheriff's department and your husband stood them down and, and then you were in this, this standoff with your husband with a shotgun leaning out the second story window. Um, I, I really can't, um, we just, I, I don't know. We just felt that we didn't understand why they were there, even though we didn't understand all that. That didn't make sense. Right. Or somebody come and tell you you got to move when, you know, it all happened so fast. It really, really happened fast. It was kind of, and don't forget I had three children. <laughs> I didn't have a lot of time for, you know, yeah. all that, all that. So, um, Steve was 12 years older, so he, he just basically took care of he took care of business, but he took care of business all his life. Right. Yeah. He and, was... and, and so when your husband stands the sheriff's department down and begins this 64-day standoff where there's already a motion filed appealing this, this decision to evict you, what, what is your husband, what, why is your husband doing this? Now, now it's time for you to straight, sit up straight in your chair and tell us what it was your husband was fighting for. Your, your husband, a former Marine? Um, yes, and he felt that they didn't have a right to come in and take him out. He felt this was his home, uh, that uh, no one had a right to take him out of his home. Um, that this was private. It wasn't like a hospital, a fire engine, a roads. And when I look back, I say, yes. This is what people, this is why our service men and women go to war, to try to help other people have their peace of their land. And then you come back and someone tells you, you have to get off this land that's yours, that you're raising your family. I don't think so. And right. that's, he's a very strong, strong person. I have to tell you, he's a very, very strong person. He, he, I've, I've just seen television footage of him. I, I believe you. So what, what had happened is the county of Los Angeles, in conjunction with the Hollywood Museum Corporation, had decided they were going to put in a museum in right. your neighborhood. And 19 right. other houses were cleared by eminent domain. And they this were hill- all elderly people. Right. And this hillside, which is now an upper-level parking lot, yeah. in back of Lot 10, off of just south of Odin, is, is now a parking lot. Um, that was to be the, the footprint of this museum. Right doesn't happen because of your husband. I so, yeah. no, I, I yeah, promise no. you that's why. Yeah, yeah. So, so what I want to do, because I want to get to 
the aftermath is 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 as important to me as the siege. These sixty four days define the rest of your lives. So, so what I would like to do is just quickly highlight some of the moments of the siege, and then get to the the aftermath where this this sixty four day siege carries your family carries it for the next thirty years. Yeah, so, Steve really carried right. It so, so day one, there's the standoff. Um, by day ten, there is a group of former Marines, yeah. one of whom John Melchevic is going to walk up any moment and is going to be in the talk with you. Um, and 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 the, literally, there's the standoff. You you and the children leave the house yes, pretty yes. quickly. Yes. So yes. tell there's us, too many right, right. Well, they're yeah. Men with shotguns right. on the roof. Yes, yeah. it's not a tell us. No, so I want you to tell us about what you and the kids do. Your husband is is with his his, his comrades, his his former his former veterans of the of the Marine Corps. Where do you go? Well, we uh, went uh, with Barney's uh, uh, Barney daughter, Barney Anthony Barney Anthony's uh-huh, uh huh his um, boss that he worked for at Barney's Beanery. They said we could come in and, and stay. They had an extra bedroom. But it was me and the three children. It was very difficult right. to be in a home with three babies in one bedroom. But they were very kind to open it up to us. But we didn't stay there very long. We then went to my brother's one-bedroom apartment. All of us were in a one-bedroom apartment. Um, so it was, it was very crazy. And yeah. as it's you're, you're running around, your husband is still in the house with a group of former Marines... Right. Holding off the Los Angeles right. County Sheriff's Department, appeals to the California Supreme Court are weighing. Uh, the Sheriff's Department is standing down. Sheriff, yes. Yes. this is the story, which we do not have time to get into in this podcast. The story is a basically lifelong struggle between Sheriff Peter Pitches and your husband. And we'll get into this okay. in the talk, but it's this cat and mouse game, right? right? Sheriff Pitches is right. the cat, and your husband is in the house. Right. And Sheriff Pitches is waking him out. Right. And this takes 64 days, at the end of which your husband is tackled by undercover sheriff's right. deputies. Uh-huh. And, and he's arrested. Mm-hmm. He, uh, you post bail for him June 14, 19, uh, sorry, May 14, 1964, just in time for him to be released and come back and watch the house be demolished. Okay. It's very sad. I want to jump, though. I want to jump to your husband is soon, about a year later, he's sentenced to a year in county jail for resisting arrest and battery. He's given 360 days, which is basically as many days as you possibly can sentence someone for this misdemeanor. So I think the term throwing, that's where the term throwing the book at him comes from. Uh, He serves work furlough. He's trained as a plumber. He comes out and now jump in. You've, you've lost your home, your husband's been incarcerated for a year, you have this growing family, and you have to put your lives back together. I'm now going to give you a lot of room to just give us the next 10, 15 years of your life and the continued st- kindness of strangers in the Anthony family. Yes, um, well, we did uh, move up to um, Sonora because uh, my father and mother had a little cafe up there. Um, and we did live above the cafe, uh, but before that, we lived in another fellow's um, little cabin uh, 
that new Steve in Hollywood. He had um, a cabins up there, so he let us in, stay. In Big Bear. In Big Bear. Uh-huh. He let us stay there, and then we moved to my parents' house. And then we moved out to Malibu, um, and we lived there for a while in Malibu. People would give you their car. Uh, one fella gave us um, a, a car, yeah. He heard just, us. Just hear said, Alona, here yeah. are the keys to my car. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it um, uh, gave us a car because we didn't have, we lost our cars and everything because Steve was a breadwinner and he was gone. And he and, was incarcerated. Yeah, incarcerated. So everything went down, down, you know. And my dad was ill. Uh, so there, my kids, my sisters and brothers were all younger. Uh, I had a brother one year older than I. That's the one I stayed in the one bedroom. But, um, you know, he was at that time 21. I was about, he's 22. So he was just out of the service too himself. And my youngest brother was in, uh, Vietnam at that time. And, uh, when, he, yeah, he, uh, came back and told us that they heard about it in Vietnam and, yeah, yeah. B, what's that? BBC, they called and, uh, yeah, people from all over, uh, uh, heard about it. And, well, all through our life, I think that's what really kinda, kinda gave Steve anxieties because wherever we went, all through our life, they'd come from LA and want to talk to him, want to know what's going on all the way through his life. And, uh, after my husband passed away, and we're we're gonna we're gonna get to Chris in a second. Came, no, I mean oh. I'm just saying that they even came to talk to me about it. And this is after my husband passed away. Right. Uh, some way they found out where I was living. So no matter where we went, they followed him around uh, in a nice way, but it still brings well, back what, things. What, oh. what 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 I want to what what I want to touch on is. There are a number of people in your husband's life who followed him not for nice reasons. So, for instance, your husband is working cutting lumber in Big Bear, yes. and one of his friends, oh, yeah, one yeah. of his friends yes, on yes, the work yeah. crew, yes. says to him one day, "What does he yes, say to him?" Yes, um, I, I guess uh, Steve told him that um, he wasn't. He, oh, he no, told no, he told Steve, Steve that he wasn't going to be working anymore cutting lumber, and then he admitted that uh, he was uh, sent there to follow him around and and uh, see what he was you know up to, what he was he doing. Was, he was a member. He was a deputy yeah. in the Los Angeles yeah. County Sheriff's Department. Yeah, yeah, and so he realized that Steve was not. I don't know what they were thinking that he was some kind of a bad guy or something. Well, we'll get into this. Well, I'm not to, sure what was going on there. We'll get into this tonight, but Sheriff Pitches, yes, this is long and complicated. Um, what I want to do is because I want to, I want to sort of get to the end of this. I want to talk about two things. Um, in night, so I want to start, come back into focus. June 5, nineteen sixty four. Your husband is sentenced to 360 days right. in Los Angeles County Jail. Right. The judge issues a statement upon his giving this sentence to your husband. He says, Mr. Anthony, if the county does not use the land as it's stipulated, they've, they've, they've taken your land from you for the purposes of building this museum. If this is not done, I expect to see you back in court in 30 years. Right. Okay? Okay, so that's that means 1994. Right. Okay, so let's get to one more milestone in your husband's life 11 years earlier. In 1983, you're still living, you're in Sonora, 
Your husband is a successful contractor. He's built your home. You're living in a home he's built. Your life is... You've put your life back together. Right, right. And the Hollywood Barn Museum moves on to the parking lot. Right. Of where you're... Just down. The, right. Just down the ways from the parking lot of where your home was. This is done because the museum is never built. And yet, they removed all... They, they destroyed all these houses right. where the museum never built. Your husband goes to help them move the barn because he's such a good guy, right? Right. And and um, I guess he, you know, spoke with the people there and they, I, I guess he felt like at least they were doing something good. It's better than wasting the land, uh, just being a parking lot. At least some good came out of it. So that must be the only reason. He didn't talk much about, um, he did a lot of moving around uh, L.A. People would call him all the time. And so I had enough just taking care of all the children and, you know, trying to, uh, you know, get things together there. So he um, he did everything. He was a strong man, did most things on his own. Okay, good. He didn't bother me with a lot of stuff. Good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to introduce your son, Chris, because I want Chris to bring us home on this. Chris, say hi. Hi. <laughs> Good. Chris, 30 years after your father's sentenced, there's still no music. They've, they've moved the barn onto the lot. Your father, true to his word as the judge predicted, your father files an appeal, the California State Appeals Court, 2nd District. This takes your father dies three years later. They're still waiting to hear the appeal. It's heard a year after he dies in 98. You go. I want you to tell us about this appeal. And really, this is going to wrap up this saga for us. Well, um, when my father passed, uh, my mom had a lot on her plate. Um, he was a pretty successful general contractor. Um, he had built a couple of homes. Um, but like my mom said, you know, she took care of the family and the house. Um, so when he did pass, there was a lot of things that were left undone that, um, at that type of a, you know, time have, uh, you know, everybody responds differently in, in a crisis. You know, uh, when I say that, I'm talking about my, my older siblings, I'm the youngest in the family. So my mom came to me. Um, we kind of made a plan. Yeah, made a plan. Uh, we only had so many days to respond to the appeal, uh, if we were going to continue it. Uh, so I went ahead and sought out one of my father's old friends that, uh, was a judge at the time, helped him out, um, with getting, uh, the papers filed and, going through the microfiche down in the archives um, and getting him to where he was at. Uh, so we had an attorney that was local in Sonora at the time that was also assisting my father. So I went ahead and, you know, terminated his contract, uh, sought out the services of somebody that was local here in Los Angeles because I thought that that would yeah. be yeah. better to have somebody that was here, not flying back and forth, because there was a lot of court trips, a lot of court dates we had to make in order to go ahead and, and bring it to uh, the final close. 
um, when we got to that that part of the trial, the judge at the time um, told us that he was an attorney um, when the uh, incident. A, a, a trial attorney. A trial. Yeah. yeah, he was. He was yeah. doing. He was in court all the time. Yeah, yeah. he was. A, he was a trial attorney. Trial attorney at the time, and he had known about the case and known about what happened at the time. Had followed it, um, and he was very sympathetic to what had happened to our family. Uh, but he just told us straight out, point blank, that he did not have the power to set a precedence uh, by reversing the act of eminent domain. Um, even though um, that he personally felt that it was unjust for the reasons that they took the property. Um, with that being said, you know, we uh, had put closure to it. I mean, that's yeah. what my father had fought for for 30 years. It wasn't for monetary gain. It was really just to have his day in court, have his voice to be heard, and we carried his voice to the end. Uh, my mother, myself, um, and that's why we're here today with you, Richard. Um, you know, uh, once again, um, now we're kind of just... Um, bringing awareness to what's still going on today yeah. um, and that has impacted so many people yeah. um, not just here in our own backyards but across this whole world and that you know we need to really stand tall and stand together uh, to make a change perfect you did it you nailed it you knocked it out of the park thank you he's very good Al- Alona we're almost done this is, this is it. This is your chance. Take a breath. I want you to tell us what you want people to remember about your late husband in the course of all we've talked about in the last 20 minutes or so. Just, just take us home and leave us with a clue. What would, what would Steve Anthony want all these people listening to think about as we wrap this up? Well, I was young. I don't think I appreciated him when I look back, he was, I think that's why people liked him so much, because he was a real human being, a real uh, man, but not a, he, he was good to women. He was kind, strong, um, caring. It's just a different person, a very different person. Uh, I can't say enough good about him. He was such a good person. Perfect. Alona, thank you. Chris, thank you. Alona, just say say goodbye to everyone and thank them. <laughs> goodbye and thank you. And uh, I guess that's why, you know, I always tell everybody I'm not a rich person, but I am because I have good memories. And um, I see, I always try to see the good in people. And uh, I, I got a lot from my husband. He was older than I. And so I, I learned a lot from him. He's a good man. And, and what really made me upset is they tried to make him like he wasn't a serviceman. They tried to get him on a ticket that wasn't a ticket. Uh, so wrong. So wrong. He's a good guy. Thank you, Alona. You're welcome. My name is Florence Towers. I'm here in the Casa de Parley Johnson home in Downey, California, 
and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. And we're done. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to our latest podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the month of October 2017. Our guests were Gordon Pattison, native son of Old Bunker Hill, talking about the reopening of Angel's Flight and the continued relevance of his lost neighborhood, and Alona Anthony, whose late husband Stephen had a heroic standoff known as the Siege of Fort Anthony in February of 19, February through March of 1964 uh, at their now long gone home, across from the Hollywood Bowl. They're just fantastic guests. I want to thank you for listening. Kim, we're going to bring this on home. It's now time for you to talk about the feedback loop. And now that we've been named the most popular podcast for LA history, I I expect to get a little more feedback. You can send us an email. Um, Easiest way is probably through the contact link at www.esoteric.com. You can join us on an esoteric bus adventure. We go out most Saturdays throughout the year. We also do these lava events, including free Sunday salons and forensic science seminars. Come out and see us, or if you're so inclined, send us a message. And you can also, if you're listening to the podcast through one of those podcast channels like iTunes, give us a review out there. It helps people find the podcast who are looking for similar things. And there aren't that many similar things, but there are, no, there are a few people talking about L.A. history, and I'm glad and hope it's a growing genre. I think we could use a few more local history podcasts and maybe a few less true crime podcasts, but hmm, I don't know. Maybe there's room for everything. The thing about podcasts is you never run out of room for podcasts. That's right. So, Okay, thank you, Kim. So we are in the home stretch, Kim. Before we sign off, you're going to give us a look ahead, because because we, we give bus tours. That's our bread and butter. We're going to take the last couple minutes of your precious time and pull your sleeve to some of our uh, tour, the rest of our tours for the year. Okay? So, Kim, take it away. Yeah, well, we have uh, tours in two different buckets, if you were. We have some California culture tours, uh, and we have some true crime tours, and... Oh, Gosh, looks like we have some literary tours, too, so that would be three buckets. October 21st, it's Raymond Chandler's Los Angeles, starting in downtown, where the mystery author was a, an oil company executive with a front seat, front row view of the corruption and venality of the mega-rich nouveau riche in Los Angeles, people who he would put into his stories, and we will then follow him to Hollywood, where he was a really incredibly successful and incredibly miserable screenwriter at Paramount. We have a brand new tour for the Halloween weekend, uh, October 28th, Saturday. It's called the Wilshire Boulevard Death Trip. It's our simplest route of all time. In fact, if you stretched a net across Wilshire Boulevard between downtown and Lachma, you would catch us at some point on that Saturday. We have many bizarre stories to share and some lovely historic preservation tales, including the extraordinary story about how one really miffed waitress helped preserve at least one part of the iconic Brown Derby. Weird West Adams on November 4th is a crime bus tour with a little side order of uh, social justice. We will go to historic Rosedale Cemetery. We'll talk about really poorly behaved Angelinos getting up to all manner of mischief in the early part of the century. And we'll also talk about uh, how the racial housing covenants, which were a national problem, were broken through lawsuits that began in Los Angeles. 
Eastside Babylon on November 11th is my most unhinged crime bus tour featuring the capture of Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, a trip through Evergreen Cemetery to see my friends the Carnies, oh they're so lovely, and the giant tamale, and the darkest crime in all of our crime bus tours, the Radio Shop Murders, which even gives me the heebie-jeebies. November the 18th, it's back to the Literary Tour series with Richard's tour of Charles Bukowski's Los Angeles, following in the footsteps of a civil servant who reinvented himself as an internationally known writer. And we will go to his East Hollywood bungalow, which we helped to save in 2007 when we were just getting started. And we will also go and see some extraordinary time capsule locations which help shape him as a man and as a writer. That brings us up to Richard's birthday bus, November 25th, in search of Imperial California, an all-day bus adventure which will never be repeated. And uh, I think if you're interested in mid-century architecture and city planning or in spaces that are really hard to get into and endangered... <laughs> This is the tour for you. Also, we'll have some delicious Indian food with a vegetarian option. And coffee and donuts. And coffee and donuts. No cake. No cake? Donuts. Okay. Maybe I'll pile the donuts together in no. a decorative fashion. No, no. Eh, cake is kind of a pain. Yeah. No. Well, the last time we had a cake. No cake. I know. No cake. No cake. Okay. Everyone likes donuts. I like donuts. I like donuts. Let me just wrap this up. So we have two tours in December, the first two Saturdays. On the second, Pasadena Confidential, a tour about typical Pasadenans, rocket scientists, black magicians, millionaires with inappropriate pets, and I'm very happy to announce we have a brand new inappropriate pet of a millionaire on the tour. <laughs> now, perhaps this is not the most inappropriate pet any millionaire no. has ever had, but I think he may be the stinkiest, and you'll learn all about him on December the 2nd. Um, he's also the cutest. And our final tour of the year will be Hotel Horrors and Main Street Vice, a downtown double feature, true crime, and really sleazy entertainments down on Old Main Street. That'll be December 9th. And some serial killers, too, and some extraordinary time capsule interiors, which somehow, against all odds and against all redevelopment, still stand. Come see them while you can. Get on the bus. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. Thank you for helping me make this podcast. I want to thank everyone at home for listening. I want to encourage you to continue to listen and I want to remind you you can't eat the sunshine. You can't eat the sunshine but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 Skin Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Hermina between us. 